Welcome to Tim Stodds FM, where each week we discuss new ideas and tactics to help you succeed in business, relationships, and life. And now your host, Tim Stoddart. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Tim Stoddart. Welcome to the Tim Stodds Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest this week is Sean Purry. Sean is an entrepreneur, a podcaster, and an investor. Formerly, Sean was acting CEO at Bebo, which was acquired by Twitch for $25 million. Currently, Sean is the Senior Director of Mobile and International Growth at Twitch. In addition, Sean is the host of the podcast, My First Million. With 2 million downloads in the first year, My First Million is quickly becoming one of the world's most popular podcasts on business and entrepreneurship. But Sean is much more than a media personality or a guru. He is a practitioner. Currently, he is working on a fascinating project where he plans to create a $1 million fund, build a $1 million e-commerce brand, and build a $1 million digital product, all within the constraints of one year. Best of all, Sean is documenting his entire journey on allaccesspass.io, where he is sending out daily emails that highlight his success stories and his failures on his quest to build these companies. He's a great example for any young entrepreneur looking to get in the game. Please help me welcome my guest, Sean Purry. Let's rock and roll. Cool. Sean, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. I'm a, I'm a big fan of your work. I'm looking forward to talking to you. No problem. Who's been the best guest so far? Who do I have to top? The guest so far that I was the most like kind of nervous to talk to that I got the most out of was Ramit Sethi. Okay. I've looked up to him, I don't know, just my entire like entrepreneurship career. Uh, Interesting. Why do you look up to him? I don't know him very well. Um, I've, I've, seen his, I've seen his like website and stuff like that, but I've, I've never met somebody who's like, I really look up to that guy. Yeah. He, well, I'm a writer and I've always just been a big fan of like long form writing and people that can build businesses through like long form content writing. And uh, his book, I Will Teach You To Be Rich, like really, really just I was always afraid of money. You know what I mean? Right. It's like that thing that I hide under my mattress. I didn't necessarily know how to comprehend that. Like, it's just a tool, right? Like that's all it sure. is. It's just a thing that you use as opposed to a thing that like you get. And uh, reading his book, like just had a huge impact on me and like really, really changed my life in a way. So when I met him, it's like one of those things where you're like, for me, I know I'm just some dude, but like for real, like <laughs> you really, really helped me. So thank you. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Um, and then I can't publish it until November because his book doesn't come out. But I had Seth Godin um, that I interviewed about a month ago. And that was like really like a, whoa. He's a, <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a, I don't know. He's like a legend. So, uh, so I think he's great. My, my best friend, Trevor, um, really wanted to beat him. Like I, I kind of turned him on to Seth Godin. And um, now many years later, he like has become friends with him or I, I don't know if they're, I don't know how friendly they are, but they've done a couple of kind of podcasts together and whatnot. And um, I think still like it, you know, with most people who you look up to, once you meet them, then it becomes sort of normal after that. Like the, you know, the shine kind of wears off, not in a bad way, but you just like, you kind of settle down. And I feel like he's just never settled down. Every time he talks to Seth Godin or about Seth Godin, it's the same maximum <laughs> level of excitement as, you know, because it is like that when you really learn from somebody or you really get that, um, you know, it, that life-changing moment. Like for me, four-hour work week was kind of my like mm. start to learn about money uh, and start to think about my life a little bit differently. 
um, you know, I got what you, what you call the four hour fever, which is you read the four hour work week. And then for the next, you know, four hours, you're like, fuck everything in my life. I got to change everything. Um, that that's, I had that when I was in college and then I met Tim Ferriss, you know, a couple years, a couple years ago. And he's a cool guy, but like, then just I like dude. settled down. Yeah, he's, I was like, oh, he's just a dude. He's just yeah. a human dude. And that's it. He's got some cool things about him and he's got some lame things about him. Okay, I got to, you know, get to that point. Great. Well, man, I'm, uh, I'm already happy so far just talking to you. Uh, I'm really interested to learn about you. Like you do so much. You've had so much experience in your, long, uh, your young entrepreneurial career. Before we get into your businesses and your successes and your podcast, I want to learn a little bit more about you as a person. Like I, I know you live in the Bay Area now, um, right. but where do you come from? Where'd you grow up and how did you get into entrepreneurship? So I've moved around a lot. So, you know, when I meet people, um, if, if you're my friend, you'll think I'm like a con man because every time I bump into someone, they're like, oh, I'm from Houston. I'm like, oh, I lived in Houston for years. And then I'll meet somebody that'll be like, I'm from Denver. I'm like, oh, Denver, I lived in Cherry Creek, you know, like, and they're like, are you lying? Like, I, there's no way you lived in all these places because yeah. I, you know, I was born in Oklahoma and then I lived in Texas and Colorado. And then I finished high school in Beijing, China. And then I lived in Indonesia and wow. I spent a you know, summer living in London. I studied abroad and lived a year in Australia. And so like all these different places where I moved around a bunch. I don't know how many places, maybe it's like nine or 10 different cities uh, that I've lived in. And for the last few years I've been living in San Francisco. I just finally left the city, uh, had a kid and my wife, you know, had been trying to beg me to be like, Hey, you know, let, let's get out of San Francisco. It's kind of a dump. If you haven't noticed, I'm like, no, but the people are great. And she's like, yeah, but like, I, I'm afraid to walk outside. And I was like, all right, all right, fine. Uh, let's, let's go to a more family friendly place. So now I'm in the Bay area, but I spent most of my life, you know, hopping from place to place and, um, very different places, right? Like I did ninth and 10th grade in Houston, Texas. I did 11th to 12th grade in Beijing, China, right? Like those are pretty much as different as it could get. Um, in terms of like a lifestyle, but that, you know, that's my story. I, this is the second time in two weeks that like the Bay area has come up. I, I spoke to, uh, Amanda Natividad the other week and she's the head of growth for, uh, Nat Eliasson's company for growth machine. Um, okay. and she spent years in the Bay area and from the outside looking in, there's always this like allure in the Bay area. Like, wow, it just looks like some magical place. But when you go there, it is really great. Like there's a lot of really cool stuff going on, but I guess I want to hear just your experience about how the city has changed over the last 10 years, because I'm, I've always been fascinated by that place. And I always felt like I was missing out, right. By like not being there, but I'm not so sure anymore. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you. So before I lived there, I was living in Australia. Um, and, and Sydney, Australia to me is like the perfect city on earth, right? You're like one, one minute you're in what looks like downtown, you know, downtown uh, San Francisco or New York or whatever, and probably more like Seattle, but you're, you're in a downtown. And then like 10 minutes later, you'd be on the most beautiful beach. You're on Bondi beach. And I was like, wow, this city's got it all. It's not overpopulated. Like it's just amazing. But I left because the one thing about Australia is um, it's like everybody in the country made a truce to not like work too hard. It's like, yeah, I, it's like, I won't, I won't do it if you won't do it. And because of that, everybody sort of gets ahead without having to like kill themselves working. It's amazing. They have a great lifestyle and a great life balance. Uh, the joke I, I, in my head, what I realized was I was like, you know how a lot of women wear makeup or heels. Women put a lot more effort into their appearance. Whereas, you know, you and me, we put you know, very little into our appearance and it kind of, you know, for me at least it shows. And so, um, 
you know, guys sort of made this truce. It's like, hey, I won't, I won't start doing that if you won't start doing that. And because of that, we're all sort of just, it's all relative to each other. That's how I felt about Australia. Um, and the most ambitious people I've met were all leaving to go to the Bay Area. And I pick up on signals like that. Like if, if I think somebody's awesome and onto something big and then they leave to go somewhere else and I hear that three times, I'm like, oh shit, what am I doing here? What do they know that I don't know? And so I was like, I'm going to move to San Francisco. I'm going to move to the Bay Area. And um, so literally I first changed my phone number. I was like, okay, I'm going to change my number. That mentally puts me, puts me there before I even know what's my job going to be and you know, where am I going to live and all that stuff. So I changed, you know, 650 area code and I decided to move out here. And I wanted to know, cause I'm interested in entrepreneurship, right? I wanted to be in the startup scene and that's Hollywood for startups. So I was like, if I'm going to be an actor, I'm going to go to Hollywood. So same thing. If I want to do startups, why would I not go there? I'm young. Of, of course, I'm going to try going there rather than doing it where I'm at. If I'm, if I have no real ties to where, where I'm living. And so I, I picked up and I left and I went to San Francisco. And the thing I noticed that I think is magical is that, in every city, a city uh, the people in the city value different things. And so like, let's say you go to New York, people in New York, I think value what I'll call power and power is, is, is in um, kind of like finance there. And it's also in uh, maybe like kind of the old money power, right? Like generations of you know, New York families that own the, you know, the, the brownstone buildings and whatever. And then you go to LA and people value fame. And they value people who, you know, models and celebrities. And that, that is the sort of, in the hierarchy, fame matters more than money, for example. And in San Francisco, um, the thing that's valued the most is ambition. And um, so you get people who signal, just like people in Hollywood will get plastic surgery to look better because they think that they'll say that's the thing that's valued amongst that culture. Uh, and of course, I'm generalizing here, but like, let's roll with me for a second. Um, so in San Francisco, it's the same thing where you have somebody who's working on, you know, payroll software for blah, blah, blah. And it's going to be a great business. It's going to print money, um, but they'll virtue signal and they'll be like, no, my, our ambition is to change the way that people, you know, earn a living. And it's like, well, yes and no, right? Like, but, but the reason people do that is because what's valued here most is ambition. And so the way that that is awesome is when you meet people here, everybody is trying to one-up each other's ambition. And the way to do it is to say, I'm changing the world in this way. No, I'm going to launch rockets to Mars. It's like, no, I'm going to go to Mars and then I'm going to put Wi-Fi on Mars. It's like, well, we have to sort of keep, you know, raising the ante uh, in order to like win the status game in San Francisco. And so what I noticed was in every other city I'd ever lived, I was always the oddball. Everybody else had a normal job and they were proud to be a doctor, a consultant, a banker at a big firm. And that's what was cool. And here I was the weirdo saying, I'm going to start a newsletter or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make this, you know, app. And I was like, okay, cool. Good for you. Pat on the head. Um, it was the odd road in San Francisco. It's the exact opposite. The, everybody has got an app. Everybody's got a newsletter. Everybody's got a podcast. Everybody's starting something from scratch. And then you have the people who have jobs like normal jobs that almost have to be apologetic. It's like, yeah, I work at chase, but, um, you know, but I got the side hustle and I'm, I'm going to leave soon. It's like, you can see there's sort of, you have to explain yourself for having a normal job and living in the city. That's what I thought was amazing and magical. I met all the other weirdos like me and here weird was normal. So I love that about the city and I still kind of love that about the city. Now there's a whole bunch of things literally about living the city that are not great, right? Like it's a huge homelessness problem. 
like super expensive. Um, you know, there's kind of like not great public transport and stuff like that. You know, it's like literally there's like a department for picking up poop because so many people pooping on the streets. It's crazy, right? Like it's like the richest city in the world, like the richest people in the world. And then, you know, you'll walk out of a building where the company's worth, you know, 20 or $200 billion. And then there'll be homeless people like on the streets dying right in front of them. And everybody walks by like they don't notice. This is a really weird city to be in. Has that entrepreneurship bug been with you from the beginning? Did you just always have that? Were you always like that young kid starting companies or whatever? No. And I thought that was weird because everybody I heard was like, oh, you know, when I was four, I had a lemonade stand and then I turned it into a lemonade franchise. I think in that's neighborhood. a status thing too. Right. Like, and I was, so I always thought, oh, I guess I'm just not one of them. Like I'm not one of them entrepreneurs because I didn't have like a you know, I wasn't selling phone books when I was, you know, in eighth grade, like I was playing video games. I was buying things instead of selling things, you know? And so I thought I wasn't cut from that cloth. And then I realized like, oh, that's just kind of BS. Like there's just tons of people. There's a million ways to win. And that's a cool one to talk about. So you hear it a lot, but it's just not as fun to talk about the other side, which is just like, like I was a normal kid doing normal things. And like later in life, I realized that business was actually a good fit for me. So definitely wasn't my I think, although, you know, I think in third grade, um, this kid, Tim on the, on the playground used to pay me to be his friend. And so I used to make a quarter a day to play with him at recess because he didn't want to be alone. And then one day my mom found my stash and gave it all back to him. And then I, you know, my whole semester of hard work was, was down the drain. <laughs> Just blew it. Yeah. So no, maybe I, that's why I, I wasn't into it. I agree, man. And I don't, when, when I can, I try to remind everybody that, there's just this like hustle mentality of like, I was born this way. I'm always working 24 seven. Like I don't sleep. And it just, it seems really counterproductive to me because the best entrepreneurs I know are very like practical and very logical. And there's been times in their lives where they thought like, I need to take a step back. Maybe there's another way that I can just earn like a, a safety salary. Like a lot of the coolest companies I met were made while people had steady jobs, you know? And I, I, come from a blue collar family and the entrepreneurs that the entrepreneur I am and the entrepreneurs that like I know it wasn't this sort of let me raise like 200 million dollars <laughs> and leverage this like amazing startup it was like no let me get one customer right, right. and then like let me make that customer as happy as possible right. and I'll then get sell them customers. a thing for more than it cost me to make right that's for, like yeah, you know totally. business <laughs> yeah totally right so i i'm always refreshed when i just hear people say like no i I like business and I like making cool stuff and it, it brought me on this journey. I, I was going to say, I did have, um, so two things you just said that reminded me. So one is there's these myths. So myth one is what we just talked about. Like I was born this way. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, you know, I used to sell my diapers instead of wear them type of thing. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I was just a baby. Um, <laughs> and then I would say myth two is like, I'm a big risk taker when like plenty of entrepreneurs are actually extremely smart about de-risking. Like the whole game yeah. is to de-risk your startup. Um, you don't want to be taking tremendous amounts of risk at all times. You want to take some, some calculated risks, right? But that doesn't sound as sexy. Um, like myth three is you got to be this like kind of slick salesperson, great talker. It's like, well, I know plenty of people who are completely introverted, shy, and do a great job. And they're, they're great leaders in their own way. Um, you don't have to be, you know, the, the, the CEO, visionary, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, myth four is you have to have a big vision. And like, I know plenty of plenty of people who started small, including like, go look up videos of Mark Zuckerberg on a couch doing an interview like this when Facebook was just at colleges. And they were like, when are you going to expand? And he was like, I don't know, like, maybe it'll just be a college thing like that. 
that's kind of what's cool is that it's a college thing. And like now, of course, he's putting satellites into Earth to give people the internet so they can use Facebook. But like <laughs> people progressively get more ambitious. That's a normal thing. But the myth is no visionary. Um, another myth, like I, I really like Chris Saka. I think he's he's an amazing kind of investor slash person, but he's, he's a storyteller and he tells these stories. And I think they're sometimes destructive where he tells these stories like, you know, the, all the best founders I invested in Uber, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. They knew from day one that this is going to yeah. be huge. I remember talking to Kevin Systrom from Instagram and he told me when we're at 50 million users, we're going to do this. And, you know, at the time he was just a dude in a co-working space. And I think like maybe something like that happened, but like, trust me, every entrepreneur has doubts. Every entrepreneur starts, you know, you know, has, has most of the time is when they think it's small and, um, and Hey, I know a lot of people who also had that belief that didn't work out too. So like there's counterfactuals. I don't know. This is a lot of myths that like, as I've encountered them, I'm like, Oh, I got to like change the chip out of my brain. Yeah. You know, there's the chip that got implanted in me. I feel like, which was like the stories people tell. And then there's like the new chip, which is like, the evidence I actually have seen now after, you know, 12 years of trying to do this thing. For sure. And I, I appreciate that. And I admire that. I'm like really curious from my standpoint, just because I want to learn this from you. And I'm sure the people listening want to learn this as well. The podcast that you're doing with, with Sam, Sam Parr from the hustle, uh, my first million. I joked about it a little bit with you. Like it doesn't have the highest production value by any means. Correct. Like I don't even <laughs> think you guys have an intro. Um, <laughs> the commercial is Sam kind of stuttering through his way about <laughs> like some fitness app, you know, but with that being said, your podcast has taken off and you guys are building like a really, really huge audience. Um, I want to know from your perspective, like what is it about either the content of the show, whether it's the dynamic between you and Sam, like what is it about you guys that is creating that, I hate to sound buzzworthy, but like that cult like following, you know, like what are right. you guys tapping into? So I'll tell you the kind of the origin story because I think, you know, while I could try to tell you what I think is the secret sauce, A, I may not know, and B, you know, not that useful for people listening, but I'll tell you kind of how we got here because I think that might be the answer and I think it's more relatable to everybody who's got their own projects in mind. So why even start the podcast? Start a podcast because uh, I was bored because I was, I was selling my company and during, when you sell a company, there's this process, the due diligence process that can take two, three months sometimes uh, while they're basically, you know, kicking the, the tires of your code and your, uh, you know, your data room and all that good stuff. And so I'm the type, like many of you probably who are listening to this, that I can't sit still. Like if I'm, if, if there's time, I'm going to fill it with like a project. I love projects. I love coming up with projects. I love abandoning projects. I love, pro I love everything about a project. I love succeeding. I kind of like failing too. And so I was like, oh shit, well, I can't start up another company or another product right now because that will like blow up this deal. So I needed a place to put my creative energy. So I was like, I'm going to do a podcast. So that was the first thing. It started on a whim. The best things I think can sometimes start just on a whim. The second thing was I had like kind of like what I'll call the floor and the ceiling. The floor was like worst case scenario, what happens, right? I was like, worst case scenario, I'm going to have an excuse to meet a bunch of cool people because I'm going to say, come on my podcast. Yeah. And I was like, for, for whatever reason, really successful people will come on your podcast. They don't even ask how many people listen to your podcast. I know, right? like, it works so well. You could, have a, you could have a zero listener podcast and I know a friend. I have a friend who I'm pretty sure he gets like, a, like maybe 500 people listening to every episode. It's not very many people. It's like small in the podcast world. And he's had heavy, heavy hitters come on his podcast because he's persistent and because 
people, I don't know, it's the ego. They just love being on other people's podcasts. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's hard to get a meeting with someone, but they'll come to your conference and speak <laughs> yeah. type of thing. And so I was like, hey, I don't want to ask these people for coffee. Um, I don't even drink coffee. So fuck that. Like, why don't I invite them on my podcast? I have a higher hit rate. So that was my secret motivation. Excuse to hang out with cool people. I don't care if nobody listens to this thing. I'm here for the guests, not for the listeners. And then the, the upside was like, yeah, you know, if this happens to take off, man, that'd be cool. If I had like a community of an audience, I thought if I, I was like, the coolest thing I could do is if every day I woke, every day I woke up and I was able to be in what I called a million people's earballs. I, I call them earballs, which is just like, you know, how powerful would that be if, you know, for, for 30 minutes or an hour, whatever it was, people were listening to my content that's like a superpower. That's like, you know, mind control for the universe. You know, if you're, if you're in people's, people's ears, it's a very intimate experience. And so I thought, wow, that would be a really powerful platform. And if I think I have good knowledge to share, or if I think I have good energy that I can, I can give to people, that's an amazing medium, but let's not dream about that. That's probably not going to happen. All right. That was step two. Step three, distribution first. So I was like, I'm not going to be one of those people who blog or podcast into the void because there's so many people that do this. I was like, I'm going to start by thinking, is there a hack to get distribution? And so I was like, well, how would I do this? I need somebody who already has distribution. I need them to give it to me somehow. And so I was like, well, actually, my buddy Sam runs this thing called The Hustle. It's this newsletter that has like a million plus readers and they do no audio. So I messaged Sam and I said, hey, I'm doing a podcast. It's about startup business type stuff. And uh, you guys have no audio, but you have a big audience. I have no audience, but I got audio. Like, would you just want free content? You got to pay me nothing, right? It's like, imagine having a really talented content creator on your platform, but you don't have to pay him. And uh, I tried to make it a, kind of a no lose for him. And he was like, yeah, of course. Great. And I was like, cool. Here's the sample and, and check it out. So that was, okay. I got my distribution. So that was important to get a seat, to get some momentum going. So I think there's a lot of great content that literally just never got that first thousand fans mm -hmm. and then, you know, dies out because of that. And then the last piece was I pivoted. I realized where I was wrong. So I started the thing with interviews with guests and I was doing a traditional interview show. And then what I realized accidentally was I wanted to add more value to the hustle. Cause I was like, look, these guys are giving me distribution. How do I give them more value? So I was like, Sam, why don't you come on the podcast every Friday, let's say, we'll just shoot the shit about stuff. You got this new product trends you want to promote. Trends is all about new ideas. Dude, I have a million new ideas. So let's do a new idea podcast every Friday. I think people might think it's fun and we'll shout out trends in that and that'll be good for you guys. So I was just trying to give him a freebie. I was just trying to give. And what I got in return was this huge response from people who were like, whoa, that brainstorm episode was awesome. Could you guys do that again? So we did it every Friday as an add-in. And what people started to like was, hey, there's a lot of podcasts out there that are interviews with guests and no offense, a lot of them are really great, but there, I've never seen an, a podcast where you just brainstorm half-baked business ideas and talk about different business trends and it just gets my wheels turning in a different way. And I have this principle, which is like different is better than better. So rather than trying to be the best interview podcast because I got to get the best guests and I got to ask the best questions, it's really hard to be better than what's out there. People are really great at this stuff. I thought maybe I can compete against nobody in being the best brainstorm podcast by just being different. And so I think ultimately what ended up working for us is we did something different than what was out there. It happened to resonate because people wanted that. And then me and Sam have good chemistry where we can riff off each other. Cause that's key. Cause in podcasting it's you come for the content, but you stay for the personalities. Mm. And so, you know, we, we have, we have some good thing going there. And I think that's what's worked so far. Although a bit, 
esoteric, let's say, because you don't want to be that guy to give like, here's the secret sauce, do this. I think there's a whole lot of insight there. One, I, I'm really happy that you mentioned the reason behind a podcast because I started my podcast because uh, I had like a stutter basically as a kid. I couldn't say R's. I was in speech class for years and years and years. And so that's why I was always a writer. And eventually just got to that moment. Where I was like, you know what, man? Like, I feel like I can have good conversations with people. And if worse comes to worse, it gives me a way to like, stop being so awkward, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. people and just meet cool people. So like, there doesn't always have to be this grandiose, like you said, like vision behind it. Sometimes the process within itself is the reward. So I- I'm glad that you said that, but I'm, it's, it's cool to see the little entrepreneurial juices come out where traditionally you think, okay, start a podcast, be consistent, be authentic, right? And then just do it over and over and over and over and over again. And then maybe one day it'll take off where the reality is, and this actually has a lot to do with, with Copyblogger, why I got involved with it because I knew that I had good knowledge to share, especially when it came to like written content. And I could really, really teach people how to do this. But overnight, I was able to align myself with like hundreds of thousands of people, which the other day before it didn't have, you know, and so like being able to actually see what's the help me out here, there might be a word for it, like it's opportunistic or something like there's, there's, there's more there's a lot of creative problem solving when it comes to entrepreneurship, right? It's not necessarily about like finding the formula. Sometimes it's about just sitting back and thinking like, how the fuck can I do this? Right. And just like putting those pieces together. And then like, you're a, a, a perfect example, like magic can happen. Yeah. At, at my company, I used to do this super cheesy thing where I was like, everybody's job title is problem solver. And they're like, yeah, mm-hmm. great. But like, I've truly meant it in my heart. And I think that's the, that's the kind of corporate cheese I'll put up with, which is like, no, like I genuinely think this is really important. I'm in, I know it's embarrassing kind of to say this out loud and put that on your business card and stuff like that. But like, you're not just engineer. You're not just designer. You're not just biz dev person. Like fundamentally I picked you out of all the people that are out there to work at this company because I genuinely believe that you'll be able to do two things. Well, identify problems worth solving, and then solve them some way, somehow, and using whatever it is. If you got to solve it with your toes, solve it with your toes. If it's if you're a designer, but what needs to be done is customer service, we'll do customer service then. Like all we care about is solving the problem. And um, and so I felt like that's the master skill, and that's the skill that should be taught in schools. Oh. And um, and you have to practice to get better at it. And then there's some certain techniques, and there's you know you can watch other people do it. And you're like, oh shit, that's a great way they solve that problem. And you create this little library in your head of great ways they solve that problem, right? Like, um, like for example, the thing I just said about how to get distribution, it's like, well, I went to somebody who had distribution, but they were lacking content and I made them a kind of compelling offer, which was like, look, I'll do essentially work for you for free um, in exchange for distribution. And uh, you know, you can get out of this every time, anytime you want, if it's not working for you, right? Like that's a solution to a problem of, I have no audience. And, um, and so I think that is the master skill to be learned. And it is the one thing I've tried to hone over the last 10 years. And um, I've just come up with like just a whole bunch of tools in my tool belt to try to solve problems better now. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Uh, Okay, perfect transition. You talked about when I ran my company, Uh, you have like a real track record of companies. Um, You sold a company. I think there's another one 
uh, that you were the CEO of. I don't know if maybe that just dissolved or something. There's like, there was a lot of research I was trying to do and you're, you're sort of a man <laughs> of mystery. Um, I'm most interested in, in your exit. Bebo, I think is how you pronounce it. Yep. Forgive me if I get that wrong. Um, first off, what was it? I, it's, it's a social networking site. We know that, but what did it have to do with Twitch? And, like, right. and, and so, just talk to me about that journey from idea to first employee to 10 employees to like, damn, I think we're selling this thing. Right. So Bebo has a really funky story where Bebo was started actually a decade ago by a guy named Michael Birch, who's my business partner. And he started it back then because his friend sent him, um, I guess, how deep do I go? Okay, so his friends, he, he was working on, uh, first he was working at an insurance company as a programmer. And he's like, okay, this insurance company needs programming. And then somebody sent him, you know, a website. And he was like, oh, this HTML, like this the web internet, this is awesome. This is way better than doing database programming at this insurance company. So he's like, quit a job at the time he was making 200k a year which is great you know for back then this was like 30 years ago almost 25 years ago um and so he starts building websites and he's like oh, okay this is cool and he, he's early on the internet early early platform people tend to get some rewards and so he built a couple of projects one was called birthday alarm it was just going to remind you of your friend and family's birthday <laughs> and this was pre-facebook so it's actually like a big problem yeah. and he, he, he was actually trying to build this like amazing like self-updating address book so you can move and i i don't have to you know lose your address it'll always update for everybody it's this giant network and you update it once and, and it updates for everybody and nobody cared about that shit but he used to do customer service because he was a one-man show and the only thing people ever said positive about his website was that hey thanks for those birthday reminders you saved my ass the other day and so he, then he spun it off and built a birthday website okay so fast forward a little bit He's building this, uh, you know, birthday e-card site back in, you know, kind of early 2000s. Uh, his friend sends him a link to Friendster, which was like the first social network that kind of got popular. Yeah. And he's like, oh, holy shit. Of course, people are going to like, people are going to make friends on the internet in this way. You're going to put up a picture in your profile. So he's like, oh, I got to do that. So literally stops working on his business that made him a millionaire. Like it was doing a few million bucks a year in profit. And he literally just stops working on it. And he's like, cause he's just followed his curiosity. So he builds a social network called Ringo at the time. Now builds a social network. Back then social networks were very rudimentary, just a profile and uh, you know, nothing else really. Yeah. And, um, but he, he gets a whole bunch of members pretty quickly. Cause again, that was kind of what's, what's new on the internet. So he gets like, I don't know, a few hundred thousand members, which is a lot of people back in the kind of 2003 range of, of the internet. And, um, but it's just bleeding money because people are using his website. He's paying all the bandwidth bills and he has no idea how to monetize this thing. So he goes to a meetup, uh, like an internet people meetup or whatever. And this guy meets him and he's like, tells him what he's doing. And the guy's like, oh, this is fascinating. I'll give you, I don't know, two, four million bucks, something like that. I'll give you two million bucks for the site. And he's like, sold, it's yours. Like, I don't, I'm, I don't want to pay next month's bill anyway. So like, great, it's yours. So he sells a social network. And then at this time, now MySpace comes out uh, Facebook starts on some college campuses and he starts to realize like, Oh shit, I think I kind of gave up a little early on this social networking thing. Like this can actually be big. And at this company who acquired him, he learned a whole bunch of tricks about like, Oh, um, you know, on the internet quizzes go viral. And so he, he ends his one year, like non-compete. And the next day he's like, I'm going to start a new social network. And he starts Bebo.com. And he starts it with a quiz, which is like uh, your best friend's quiz. So how, how well do you know me was the, was the name of the quiz. So I take it. I answer 20 questions. I send it out to my friends. And I say, see how well you know me. They take the quiz and it gives them a score. Like, you know, Sean, the fifth best out of all these people. 
you should do your own and send it to your friends. So it goes super viral as you can imagine. And uh, nine days, it gets a million members on, uh, to, to sign up on the, on, the, on the social network. And it becomes, over time, it becomes the most popular social network in Europe and in Australia and a bunch of different places. Not the US, it was third biggest in the US after MySpace was number one, Facebook and Bebo were not kind of like two and three, neck and neck. And, um, but it was number one in Europe. And so, you know, fast forward a little bit, Facebook starts to grow really fast. It starts to kill MySpace, it starts to kill Bebo. So he ends up selling Bebo kind of at the top of the market to AOL for $850 million. So that's his story, not my story, right? So he sells Bebo at that time. Um, he then is like, you know, uh, 800 millionaire basically because he, he had bootstrapped the whole thing using his birthday alarm money. So he had only raised some money from venture capitalists at the very end, uh, but he owned, you know, a huge chunk of the business, him and his wife, uh, Zochi. And so, you know, husband and wife duo, they had done two businesses before and now they're like, okay, we still want to keep doing new things. We love starting things from scratch, but now we can do this on our own terms. So it was like kind of entrepreneurial dream. So they start an idea lab. This is where I come in. So I, this is, remember I said I was in Australia. I wanted to move to San Francisco. Yeah. I had this idea in my head of, I want to somehow in the next four years, I want to get 20 years of experience. That was the question I asked myself. And like you said, we're creative. We're, our brains are problem solving machines. So I said, how do I get 20 years of experience in four years? And my brain told me, you need to work on not one company. You need to be in a portfolio. So you get a bunch of different exposure at once and you get to learn from a bunch of different things because otherwise you're just specializing in knowing only one niche. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well, where do I get an entrepreneurial portfolio? How does that work? And so then that night I go on angelist.com and I see this, this company that's an idea lab. It's a guy who's building four or five companies at once and he's looking for a product manager or an entrepreneurial type of person to come join. And he had 20 engineers already working for him. And so that's how I came to San Francisco. I joined, I ended up joining that idea lab. And so long-winded way of saying a couple months later, uh, probably four months into the job four four or five months, I, I wanted to work with him. I was like, this guy's a baller. I want to work next to him every day. Uh, him and his wife, I really hit it off with them. And he gives me his job four or five months into the gig. He's like, I want you to be CEO of this company. Um, I think you're going to do big things in Silicon Valley. You're either going to leave here and go start your own company or I give you this one. And so I'm going to give you this one. And I was like, wow, I'm you know, honored. I'm a 24 year old kid. And I think this is amazing. So in the idea lab, the reason I've had done so many projects is because the idea lab does so many companies. So yeah. I was simultaneously CEO of four different companies at any given time. Along the way, he tells me, Hey, guess what? Uh, AOL did nothing with Bebo. They wrote it off as a tax write-off essentially a year later. Um, Facebook took over the world. That era was dead. But, you know, and Bebo kind of traded hands. A private equity guy bought it. But there's a chance it's, you know, to buy it on the cheap. We can buy the brand back. We can buy the name. We can buy the domain. We can buy the email list. We can buy the servers, everything. And so we agree to do it. And, you know, why not? This could be fun. Um, we go to an auction. We end up buying it back for a million dollars. So he sold it for $850 million, bought it back for one. And we said, let's try to rebuild it as something else. And we iterated through a whole bunch of different product ideas, the last of which was this um, uh, uh, esports platform. So we had this idea, which was we saw Fortnite and gaming was just on this tear and Twitch was growing in tremendously in popularity. Um, but there was no like structure around uh, esports. Uh, so what we thought was, what if, you know, just like a high schooler can play on a basketball league or a football league or a baseball league. Why can't I play in a Fortnite league? Fortnite as a game is more popular than any of those games, but there's no organized sports. There's no rec leagues for esports. There's only pros. And then just like kind of kids playing the game. 
And so we tried to create, and we ended up creating the largest high school Fortnite league in the country. And we built a platform that was like basically like a tournament platform for people who wanted to play in tournaments. And while you were playing, it was live streaming video, the whole thing. So your friends and family could watch you play in the tournaments, just like, again, you could come watch me play in a basketball game. That was the idea. And as that started to get a little bit of a track, a little bit of traction, we ended up getting into conversations with a bunch of the big platforms who were like, Hey, this is cool. We see this as, you know, some, something that would get, encourage a lot of people to come create content on our platform. Um, and we got into acquisition talks and ended up choosing to go with Twitch, who's kind of the market leader in the space. And we thought, you know, being a startup is hard because you're the, you're the nobody and you're starting from scratch and you're always going up against the incumbents. I thought it might be fun to go be the, go be the 800 pound gorilla in the space and go see what that's like. So we got acquired last year. A buddy of mine, he has a newsletter called weekly.gg. Um, give him a shout out. What's up, Franco? And <laughs> I read his newsletter every week. Like, man, where is this thing going? Like everybody's losing money on it, but the whole thing just keeps growing. Right. So eventually, you know, like, everyone will keep dying until one day somebody does it. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm like, just as a fan and somebody that's interested in it, I'm really excited to see where all that goes. Yeah. You know, the, you're, you're absolutely right. The attention keeps growing. So the eyeballs and the, the, the fan side of things and the gamers keeps growing and the yeah. business is actually like way far behind. So it's like, you know, thousand X behind. And uh, unfortunately there was a period and maybe it's still going on. I don't know. There's a hype bubble where everyone's like, investing in esport teams or buying esport teams and yeah. like it was like the new billionaire thing to do it's like cool i got a boat and i got a basketball team okay i'm gonna also own this esports franchise like yeah. um and it didn't really make a lot of sense and so this is where kind of like the business perspective comes in which is one of the reasons teams are really valuable in traditional sports is there's a limit of how many can, there can be there's 30 nba franchises there's not 31 i can't decide to create one with esports i can create my own e watch i'm gonna do it right now you know Sean Gamers, that's our esport team. I just created an esport team and I'm the only person on the roster. Right? Like it, it takes nothing to create an esport team. It's like creating an Instagram account. And so there's an infinite number of teams. And also nobody owns the sport of basketball. So you can't have a monopoly, but somebody owns the game. And so ultimately, whoever's going to make the money, I believe, and, and I believe the way the esports will, will work out is it will keep growing in popularity. And most of the value, the vast majority, 95, 97% of it will accrue to two parties, the game maker and the media platform, which is like YouTube or Twitch. And everybody else is going to be thinking that they're part of this huge thing, but they're going to be wondering, hey, how come I'm in this really popular thing that I get no money out of? And they're not going to realize it because they have zero leverage. And the leverage is all with the game makers and it's all with the platforms that you stream on. Um, and everybody else is sort of a unfortunately, a, a sort of a disposable part. It's like, if it, okay, if it's not you, cool. Guess what? There's a huge supply of other gamers and other teams that will take your spot in a second. So you have no negotiating leverage, essentially. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think streamers are kind of like people who they create Substack newsletters. Like you're a small independent brand that some people are going to subscribe to and there's going to be one out of a thousand that make like a couple million, like, you know, Pomp yeah. is like... Uh, He's like a golden nugget. You know what I mean? Not everybody that creates a newsletter is going to be, is going to be pomp, but most people will be able to make like $60,000 a year or something like that, right. like playing video games and, and basically feeding this mash machine, which is just going to like starve them to death. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, 
Yeah, cool, man. Well, this conversation has been going on for a little bit. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thank you so much for elaborating on that story. Um, I do want to finish up the conversation with talking about your fund, though. Like you and I right. started talking more or less on the internet because you mentioned that you were creating a fund and I mentioned that I wanted to invest in it. And then three days later, you're like, yeah, it didn't take us a month to hit 1 million. It took us like four days to hit like right. 1.6, right? Um, so where did you get the crazy idea to just randomly come up with a fund and why are you even doing that? So I started this thing uh, a few weeks ago, which I was like, okay, I've been doing this podcast for one year, right? Podcast for a year. We hit uh, 2 million downloads in year one. I felt really excited about that. And I was like, okay, where to from here? I'm going to keep doing the podcast, but the number one thing that I, the question I got out of uh, the podcast was cool. The podcast is all about brainstorming ideas for companies, ideas for startups. And then the, the, the thing I kept getting in my inbox every morning was like, Hey, cool. I got the idea either from the podcast or from my own life. Like, where do I, how do I do this? How do I execute this? Um, where do I, I think I know how to start. How would you approach this? And, uh, and so I, I got this idea. I was like, okay. Um, what if I could teach people how to execute? I was like, well, I don't care. there's no course called how to execute at your venture.com. And I'm like, that doesn't work. It's too generic. And I was like, I also don't have like the answers. I was like, but I think I got good at executing by like basically by being bad for 10 years. Eventually you start to get not so bad. And I was like, I think, I think I'm actually pretty decent at this now. What if I did the following? What if I tried to do some new projects and I open sourced how I was going to do them? And I was like, my personal thing I wanted to grow at was consistently creating more written content because I was, I felt I was getting good at the audio game, but I wanted to do more written content, which is, you know, relevant for you guys. Um, and so I was like, what if I wrote a daily blog of how I was going to do a new, a new venture, right? Like I talk about, you know, these different businesses. So I said, all right, let me, let me, so I, I created this frame and the frame was, I'm going to launch three different million dollar businesses in the next four months. And I said, uh, I'm going to do three totally different ones. I'm going to do one that's an investment fund uh, because there's this new platform that came out uh, on AngelList for rolling funds. And like I told you before, I think being early to a new platform is just the way to live. It's you learn a bunch. You'll usually get it wrong. That platform dies. But when you get it right, you get it way right. Yeah. Uh, and so I thought, I, I already have been investing in startups for the last couple of years myself using you know my own personal capital. I'll probably put in about $300,000 into startups. Well, what if I could write bigger checks into some of these companies by having a fund behind me? Um, then I could, you know, have a bigger ownership position. And if these companies pay off, like I think they're going to, then that would be great. It'd be good returns for me and for anybody who invests with me. So that was, that was the fund. And then I had two other ideas. I said, I'm going to show people how I would build an e-commerce product and I'm going to show them how I would build an information or a digital product. And I'm going to literally do a daily, you know, five, five times a week, blog of what I did that day to execute these things in real time, not like after the fact. And so if I fuck up and I take some wrong turn for four days, I'm doing the wrong shit. You're going to see me do the wrong shit. Cause I think that's very real about how execution works. So the first thing I created was this thing I called the all access pass. So if you want to subscribe to it, it's all access pass.io. So I was like, I'm going to do this. And the first venture out of it was a fund. And um, so anyways, that, that's how I got the idea to do, to do the fund. Um, and that's how I launched it. And basically we're 11 days in now and we've raised $2.5 million now. Um, so, so every project, and this is in the all access pass, I, I, day one is how I kick off any project I do. And I have this like a little template I use of like what a kickoff looks like for me, how I set my, my, my plan up. And in any plan I do, I set kind of like 
a minimum goal. Like, I think this would be a solid win. Um, this means I'm like in the game. It, it, it kind of worked. Um, and then there's like the, what I call the, the fuck yeah win, which is like, what number would I would be like, wow, like, fuck yeah, this is amazing. And I set both of those benchmarks. So my, my, my small win was a million bucks if I could raise a million dollars in 30 days from using none of my own personal network. So like you reached out to invest. I have never met you. We had never had a conversation. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to see, could I through cold and kind of like just internet people that are out there through the audience of the podcast and whatnot, could I do this? Could I, could I successfully get people to invest in me and this fund? Um, and, and so 1 million was the goal in 30 days. And in 11 days, we hit 2.5 million. So we hit the FEI goal, which was 2.4. We crossed that, um, as of actually yesterday. And so now I'm, I'm done fundraising with that. Now it's about actually investing it successfully and deploying it. Um, but, but that's the, that's the adventure I'm on next four months. So I'm launching three of these different ventures. The first one was a fund. I'm, I'm going to finish that one up this week. And then I'm going to, uh, launch the next uh, venture and show people how I do that next. So an e-commerce and a digital product brand. What, what's your, what's your econ product? Uh, well, I'm going through the process right now. So, so yesterday, you know I, what it is? No, I, uh, that's what, I'm going to, from scratch, like <laughs> I'm going to just come up, I'm going to show you how I would come up with the ideas. Oh and my so, God, I love like, it. So I sent out the email yesterday because for e-com, so I'm not actually going to start the e-com till the end. It's the last product, uh, last of the ventures I'm going to launch. Okay. But with e-com, you need like a long lead time. Like I have one successful e-com business right now that I, I own with my wife. Um, and so I know from that, it took us six months to get from idea to first sale with that. Yeah. And I was like, I don't have six months to even do this. So I need to like microwave this. Um, so I was like, well, there's inevitably some lead time of like finding, you know, getting your idea, finding your supplier, getting your samples, sample needs to be corrected in some way. And that's back and forth takes months. So I, so even though I'm doing the fun venture right now, I started planting the seeds for my e-com thing that I'm going to like start selling in two, three months from now. Um, because you have to do that. So yesterday I sent out the ideation for the first idea. We had our first day of ideation around the e-com thing. And I sent people a bunch of the bad ideas that we came up with and like, we're, and how, how we're coming up with these different ideas. So it's been pretty fun. I love that. I think that is like so fun about the internet is you really just get to do it and screw up in public in real time and just use all of the feedback you get to try to figure out what you're doing. Right. Like, I just, <laughs> exactly. I love that. I think that is such a fun story. I'm definitely going to be following along for sure. I mean, I'm a fan of what you're doing already and I'm, I'm grateful to have been able to build whatever kind of relationship we've built so far just to see, just to see where this all takes you, man. I'm excited about the e-com thing. I have a, a, a I mean, a medium successful t-shirt company I've had for the last five years. And there's so many things about physical products that you don't think of, just stupid stuff. Like, and I mean, even like, where am I going to keep it? Right? right. Like you don't even think about it until I all- I show you my garage right now. <laughs> exactly. That's all of a sudden you have a garage full of stuff with boxes and you're like, what do I do with all this? So, uh, right. So anyway, man, um, best of luck to you on that venture. I'll definitely be following along. So we got allaccesspass.io. Yeah. Um, I'll put your Twitter on there. It's, it's Sean Perry. And yeah. do you have like a personal blog? Do you have anywhere else people can No, just all, all access pass. I'm just crunching out content. And actually, uh, this might be interesting for the copy blogger uh, audience, actually, because I, I was doing this thing where when I write this email every day, writing every day is like pretty hard. And mm -hmm. um so I, I realized there's always the meat of the, of the post, which is actually, that's the easy bit. That's like, I kind of know the message I'm trying to get across, but then there's the whole like dressing and packaging. Like there's the intro and there's the outro and there's the subject line and like all the stuff. So I actually created a little stash 
to help myself uh, do this. I was basically like created a huge stash of like subject lines, openers, transition uh, lines and closers, just those things. And I was like, I can use this on no matter what my post is about. I need these like little, like just slick little ways to transition, like great little clever openers. I get people's attention, make them a little bit happy before they read my, my content. And so I, I, I'm going to post them. But I'll, I'll come up. I think, let me, let me see. Allaccesspass.io slash secrets. So this is my secret stash. So allaccesspass.io slash secrets. I'm basically, if anybody wants these little openers and closers <laughs> yeah, and transitions. Your public secret just, stash. <laughs> yeah, just go there and download it because this was my pain in the ass with writing. It was my blocker was like, how do I make this whole thing? How do I package this up? Yeah. And now I've curated this stash. So if people just want it, go get it. Uh, it's, for, it's free. Just, just go download it. I love it, man. We will link all of that in the show notes of the blog post and of the uh, actual podcast on iTunes and Spotify and all that. Man, Sean, it was great talking to you. Um, I love your energy, man. I, I, I am not just your enthusiasm, but just your willingness to like have fun with these projects, you know, because at the end of the day, like it's not that big of a deal. And it seems right. <laughs> like you, you feel that way about it. Like, yeah, this is cool. I'm trying to make money, but it's also not that big of a deal. And uh, right. I find that very refreshing, man. So, so thank you thank for you. your time, man. Uh, let's keep in touch. I hope we do it again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, brother. Hey guys, it's me. It's Tim. One last time before we wrap up, just wanted to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please leave me an honest rating. Please follow me on Spotify. It's the best thing you can do to support the show. If you want to find out more, go to timstods.com. Feel free to fill out the contact form to reach out to me personally. I always respond. I appreciate you guys so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one.